Let's open our Bibles to, to Luke chapter 5. Um, I know it says Luke chapter 6 up there on the slide. That's a little typo on my, my part, but it is actually Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning, for the chance to gather together to worship you, to gather as the church and to worship our God. Lord, I also just want to remember Matthew and ask that you would touch his body. Lord, give him rest this morning. Restore his strength. Lord, heal him of this virus and bring restoration to that household. We also pray that through this, the power of your spirit that you would challenge us this morning, encourage us, and change us through this message. There's good news in this passage. And if we were healing it, willing to hear it, there's a necessary challenge for many of us. So we ask that you would do your work in us this morning, Lord, through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a couple reasons why uh, this, this passage was... I think I was drawn to this morning. One of them is one of the one of the goals that we have as a church is to become more missional. That means to be more effective in evangelism, to to begin to 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 be more bold in our declaration of the gospel. Um, you know, one of the things we did with with when we um, brought deacons. Uh, filled the office of deacon this year. We had Matt Brodine as our deacon overseeing missions and outreach. You know, that's there, that was done for a reason, because as a church, we excel at a lot of things. And a lot of you excel at sharing the gospel. But I think if we all would just stop and think for a minute, we can certainly grow in that. And we want to grow in the next year and the next years, actually, as a church. And, you know, one of the things that we've we're thinking about and talking about, I'm kind of rolling this out a little bit early. Actually, I'm meeting with with Matt uh, later this week to talk about it. But I'm going to go ahead since uh, I think the Holy Spirit Brought, obviously brought all this around is we wanted to encourage people to, you know, we haven't come up with a fancy name for this yet, but we want to encourage people to do what for the time being we're calling missional meals. It simply means we want to set aside some time, maybe a, a specific week of each month, where we just encourage everyone to get together with someone who's not a Christian, who's outside of your normal sphere of influence, someone that you don't normally get together with, and preeminently, they have to be someone who's not a Christian. Get together and have a meal with them. It could be inviting a neighbor into your home. It could be a coworker. Whatever the situation may be, whatever opportunities the Lord has given you, we want to encourage you on a monthly basis to begin to reach out to those who are not Christians, those who are lost and without hope in this world. And let's begin as a church to, to um, uh, be, become more aware of these people, to to have more of a heart for them and to desire to spend time with them with the purpose of getting to know them, to pray for them, to pray with them, and ultimately to look for opportunities and to share the gospel with them. So 
that's one of the things that uh, we're, we're preparing and working on. We have a lot more details about that in the new year, but I just wanted to let you know that's coming because I think uh, this message kind of fits, ties in with that really nice, nicely. So I just encourage you to keep that in mind and keep that in mind as, as you listen to what I have to say. So recently, if you've been watching the news or reading on the Internet, everybody should be aware of the Ebola crisis that's out there. It's some deadly disease. It's highly contagious, what I've been told. It's primarily over in Africa, but there's been a few cases here in the United States. Um, it's, it's very deadly for those who contract it. It often ends in the death of the individual who contracts it. And if you're aware, if you've seen anything, you, you know that a number of people have been flown over to the United States to be cared for and treated here. And if you uh, watch them, they're always going into quarantine. And if you watch them on, you know, I've seen it on TV and on the Internet a few times. There are, obviously, you can't just quarantine someone in a, a room and just tell them to take care of themselves and, and, you know, do whatever they need to do to get better. Somebody has to go in there, into this room, and care for these people to, um, to, to feed them, to give them the medications, to do whatever you do to a sick person to help them get over Ebola. But look at, the, have you noticed how those people are dressed? They're always in, you know, uh, they're covered head to toe. They've got hats on, they've got face masks on, they've got, you know, a thing over their mouth, a thing over their, their, their faces. They're covered from head to toe in, in gowns, in gloves, in booties. There's not any, any exposed skin, or sh certainly there shouldn't be any exposed skin. But they do that. Why do they do that? They do that for a reason. They want to protect themselves and insulate themselves from Ebola, and that's a good thing to do. It's not a disease that they want to catch. So they're, they're, they're proper, they're right, they're wise to be, to be dressed that way and to be careful around this dangerous disease. So they go to great lengths to protect themselves while they work in the midst of this terrible, terrible disease. But do we do the same kind of thing in our lives but in a slightly different way at times? Do we find ourselves going to great lengths to avoid that which we don't want to come in contact with? That which we are afraid of? That which we might think might contaminate us or our families? And I'm not talking about diseases here or bacteria or viruses. Those are all bad things that can bring harm to us, and we were right and correct to, to be careful around those things. We take precautions, and that's, that's good. But I don't have those things in mind this morning. The question for us to consider Today, is we, do we do the same thing with people? Do we do the same thing with the tax collectors and the sinners that are around us? Do we put up walls and shields and act and behave in certain ways that keep us from having any contact with these people or minimizing our contact wherever possible? Are we minimizing our contact with the very kinds of people that Jesus spent a lot of time with? He spent a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners. Most every time we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, there are all sorts of people around him. Once he began his public ministry, he's constantly surrounded by people. He calls out to people and people come to him as word spreads about him. Especially around that region, the parallel passage in Mark tells us that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. And it was often, po uh, often possible, or as often happened, people were attracted to him. He, he attracted a crowd. There are lots of crowds who are interested in Jesus. We read that throughout the Gospels. Wherever he went, there were crowds coming to him. They had heard about him. Maybe they had heard about his, his, uh, some of the miracles he was doing. Maybe they had heard about his teaching and the authority that which he taught with. And they wanted to come and see, what's he going to do next? What's he going to say next? And at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's only four men who are with him. 
there he had called at this point in time he called he called um or at this point in this in this story in this passage he's about to call the fifth he's calling levi and levi we are told was a tax collector tax collectors were not the most popular men in town um you might might maybe might be fair to say that that hasn't changed much in 2000 years hopefully <laughs> nobody here works for the irs there were three kinds of taxes back then for the jews under the Roman Empire, there was a land tax of, a, of was about 10% of their harvest. There was a second tax. It was called a poll tax or a head tax. that was roughly equivalent to a day's wages. And there was a third tax. It was a customs tax that was levied on goods and merchandise. There would be collection points set up along the roads, along the, the highways, along trade routes, at the entry, entrance into towns, at the exits of towns. And it was kind of like a toll. If you've ever driven west on I-70 or gone south, on I-35, you, you pass through some toll booths where they want to take money from you for the privilege of driving along that road. These custom taxes were, were somewhat similar to that. Tax wasn't exorbitant. It was typically in the range of 2 to 5%. And Levi was one of these tax collectors who, ta who collected this customs tax. And it happened to be that this tax is the one that the people, that the Jews hated the most. Not only did these tax collectors take your money, but they weren't necessarily nice about it in the process. And here's how it would work. Now, the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire, the, the Romans had decided to get out of the business of actually collecting taxes. So what they would do is that they would um, bid out the, 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 the right to collect taxes. So if you were a wealthy individual or maybe a group of individuals coming together, you could bid on a contract to collect taxes in a certain area of the empire. And if you outbid everybody else, you got the contract. Another unique thing, thing about this tax is that these, these investors, these bidders, had to pay the tax up front. So they would bid on how much money they were going to give to Rome up front. So a group of men might to get together, or a single individual who was, was wealthy enough might say, get together to bid on, um, might say, I wanna, I'll, I'll bid a million dollars to collect taxes around that city. And if that was the best bid, Rome would give them the contract. They would pay the million dollars up front, and then they would go out and begin to collect taxes. Now, the, the, the chief tax collector, obviously, or these investors, obviously would want to collect enough taxes to pay that million dollars that they had to give to Rome, but they would also want to make a, a profit for themselves. So they might set a goal of $2 million to, to raise in taxes. And then they would hire individuals to go and be the individual tax collectors. So... If, for, um, for instance, if a, if a company or a, a group of investors hired 10 tax collectors, each one was given a goal or a objective of $200,000. Well, these individual tax collectors then might want to make a little extra money on the side, so they might set an individual goal of $250,000. So you can see how this just kind of builds up. Everybody wants to take a little cut of, of the profits here. There was, the problem was with this customs tax that there was very little regulation, there was very little enforcement, and it allowed for a lot of corruption. And there was virtually no enforcement of the few rules that did exist. So these tax collectors, by whatever means they wanted, could be, could be by extortion, could by, be by cheating or by fraud. They could pretty much collect however much they wanted to collect. Understandably, there were many reasons that tax, these tax collectors were hated by the Jews. They were despised since they were seen often as seen as being partners with the Roman Empire. So these tax collectors were viewed as sellouts. They were almost always thieves, swindlers. They could confiscate your goods if you didn't declare your goods properly. 
They could make false, false accusations and they could threaten you. They had the power to determine what your goods were worth. So if you go through the checkpoint and they look at your basket of fish and say, looks like about $1,000 of fish in there, but you look in and you see only three fish. How can that be worth $1,000? And they look again and said, yep, $1,000. 5% is $50. That's your tax. It's kind of like going up to the toll booth on I-70. It's been a few years since I've been out there, but they do it based on the number of axles on your cars, if I remember right. So it'd be like driving up there in the little Honda Civic and the tax collector, the, the toll booth collector looks out and says, looks like you got five axles to me. And you know for very certainly that that car only has two but they're the, they're the collector, and they get to decide how many axles, axles are on the ax that, actually on that car, and they would collect the appropriate amount. That's what these guys could do and were doing. That's why they were so hated. To make things worse, the average person probably didn't know what, tax, what the tax regulations were. The tax collectors were the experts. One, would, one week they could charge you 3%. The next week they could charge you 5%. It was a classic injustice system of, in, in all of its glory. And there was very little that anybody could do about it. The tax collector had all the know-how. He had all the power. And that made for a system of corruption. If you have felt you had been cheated, the appeal was process was long, it was difficult, and you faced great odds about ever winning any kinds of appeals. They would keep cheat. They would commit fraud. They would steal. They swindle. And there was no one who, could, who would stop them from doing it. So given the reputation of tax collectors, the contempt in which they were held, and the fact that most of them were cheats, the last two words of verse 27 here are, are actually quite remarkable. Jesus sees Levi sitting there in his tax booth, and he says, follow me. And we are told that Levi rose. He left everything, and he followed Jesus. He left his source of income, his security, all to follow Jesus. No questions asked, just an immediate response. He got up, and he followed Jesus. It's a big, difficult to figure out here what's more amazing in this part of the story is it more amazing that levi got up and followed jesus or is it more amazing that jesus called him levi didn't make any excuses to jesus when when he calls he didn't say oh jesus sorry it's really busy right now april 15th just around the corner i've got to get to my quota the rush is really on if you could just come back in a few months or better yet just send me an email reminder and i'll get back to you when i have some free time it's doubtful at this point in time that, that Levi really understood completely who Jesus was. He probably didn't understand that Jesus was about to die in a, in a couple of years for his sins. Levi probably didn't grasp that Jesus was the Son of God in flesh. He'd, been, he'd probably seen or heard enough about Jesus in order to follow him. He could recognize the power that Jesus had and his authority. There was something in him that resonated with that call, follow me. He must have believed just enough to get up and take those first steps. And it's really amazing if you stop and think about what Levi did. But I actually think it's more, more amazing about what, what Jesus did. This is like Jesus walking into George Tiller's abortion clinic. I don't know if, if you know who George Tiller was, but he was a very well-known, uh, sadly well-known abortionist in the state of Kansas. Uh, performed late-term abortions, um, was responsible for the death of thousands of babies. It's like Jesus going up to him and saying, George, follow me. And George getting up, walking out of his abortion clinic, never going back and following Christ. The story gets even better, though, or worse, depending on how you look at it. Verse 29. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. Here's Jesus with his disciples. What do you think that's going through Peter, Andrew, James, and John's mind right now? They maybe be just freaking out a little bit. Um, this is not what we had planned, Jesus. I'm okay with the Jesus who's doing all those miracles, the healings. Those are really cool. I love to hear his teachings. The crowds gathering around him, that's really exciting. I'm good with Jesus who teaches on the kingdom and repentance. But now we're going to go do some really weird stuff. We're going to go some places that I don't think that we really should be going. What do you mean we're going to go to Levi's house and have dinner with him? But it's not just a quiet dinner with Levi and his family. Levi invites all of his friends, other tax collectors and sinners, to come and join them. It's going to be a dinner party, a big dinner party with lots of sinners, lots of tax collectors. There might be drinking there. What about the music that might be played? Those guys tell jokes that I'm not sure are very appropriate for, for me to be hearing. Don't you know what kind of women that might be at that party? How many of us would be tempted to think that way as we read this story and think about what's taking place? So there they are. They find themselves at Levi's house having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Let's use our imagination a bit and imagine the people that might be reclining around the table. As we look around the room, we might notice a young man who is a drug addict. Maybe there's a woman who sleeps around for no for sleeping around. There might be a gay couple over on the left. There would be definitely be a few who would be into different religions, Muslims, Mormons, maybe some Buddhists. There's a married couple who's constantly fighting with each other. There are kids running around being disrespectful and loud and rude and obnoxious. The music's loud. The lyrics are offensive. There's flirting going on. There's crude juke, jokes. There's smoking. There's drinking. Maybe in the back row, there's a a nominal Catholic couple whose wife is fighting cancer. And while they pray, and many of their prayers are misdirected to, to Mary and to other saints rather than to Christ. There's another couple. He was raised in the Baptist church, she in the Catholic church. And he walked away from his faith for a relationship. He believes, though, his kids are growing up Christian simply because they go to a Catholic school. They were baptized as infants and have passed the Catholic catechism test. And finally, your eyes notice a couple that you know very well, people you enjoy to be with. They are nice, they're polite, they're generous, they're caring, they're well-off, they're upper-middle class. They're thoughtful and intentional in their parenting, but they don't recognize their need for a Savior, despite all the time that you have shared the gospel with them and prayed with them. These are not imaginary people. These are our neighbors. I described to you, just described to you the people that live around my home here in Overland Park. Is it any wonder then, though, that the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling as they think about who Jesus just went in to sit down with and have dinner with? They are absolutely scandalized seeing Jesus recline at the table with sinners and tax collectors. He's there with all this spiritual riffraff. Some of you may be familiar with this story. and We could be tempted to think, oh, those crazy Pharisees. They don't ever like anything that Jesus did. But if we were there watching as, as this event unfolded, what would our response be? Perhaps some of us have neighbors who like to throw parties from time to time, or perhaps their kids have parties when mom and dad are out of town. I think we all know a family or two has a reputation somewhat like this. It's Christmas time. There's going to be lots of Christmas um, holiday parties taking place. There's going to be gatherings. There's going to be drinking. There's going to be flirting. There's going to be smoking. There's going to be loud music, the whole, the whole bit. 
Everyone knows what's taking place at those parties. Everyone knows who's at those homes joining in together. Around 2 in the morning, the party spills outside and someone sets off a bunch of fireworks. You get up from bed. You've been woken from a deep sleep. You're boiling mad. And you look out the window and you glance around to see if you can identify which neighbor it is, who's out there making all that noise. And, and your eyes are drawn to someone you recognize. You squint and you look closer and you realize it's Jesus. It's the immediate thought that comes into your mind. That's what the Pharisees were seeing here. They're looking out and they're saying, it's Jesus in there with those taxers and with those, with those tax collectors and those sinners. What in the world are you doing there, Jesus? You shouldn't be here. Don't you know what kind of house that is? Don't you know what kind of man Levi is? Don't you know what kind of friends he has? The next morning, you're out for your morning walk or your morning jog, and you encounter Jesus along the path. Maybe it's out by the lake, and Jesus is there. And you ask him to your Christmas party. You tell him you're going to have a nice Christmas. You're going to have nice Christmas carols together that night. There's going to be Christian music playing in the background. The children will all be there. They're all well trained and disciplined. They're going to be everybody's going to be dressed really nice. Come to our our party, Jesus. Everyone there is a Christian. Everyone there is respectable and godly. It will be a nice, safe calm and quiet environment not at all like that party you were at last night notice though that jesus is not engaged at sin at levi's house or at this dinner party he's not condoning their sin by being there but he's definitely there with them eating with them known sinners is there any part of us that says jesus come on you've got to get out of there you don't belong there if you don't leave i'm going to have to go tell one of the pastors what you were doing last night what would we think if we had been with Jesus that night, if you're one of his disciples, if you're one of those, one of those four, and you observed what he was doing? What if it was you, if it was me that you saw there? What if it was Matthew? What if it was one of your care group leaders that you saw at that party? What would you think? What if it was another member of the congregation? What thoughts are going to go through our minds if we see, imagine that, a Christian, a pastor, a care group leader, engaging with sinners and tax collectors. There's a homeless couple that I've been friends with now for about four years. They are meth addicts. It's very likely that she's an alcoholic. Most of the time I've known them, they've lived in hotels when they could afford it. If not, they slept in a storage unit that they have up in, in, in Miriam. And often, in the, when the weather's nice, they would just sleep outside. The man spent 20 years in jail when he was younger because he killed someone. He's been back to, to jail twice in the last few years that I've known him. They smoke nonstop, and they look, they look like, they're, like they're drug addicts and that they're alcoholics. I've had the privilege of getting together with them often through the years. I share the gospel with them. I pray with them. I offer them my counsel and advice on how to get their lives turned around. Last summer, the woman was finally able to, to secure a job a steady job, and now they live, for six months now, they've been living in a hotel down in South Olathe. It's the first time in probably, well, in the four years that I've known them, that they've stayed in the same place for more than just a few days. So now they're, they're there, selling into that hotel. It's a, it's a small room. The man is able to get odd jobs here and there. You can imagine with his kind of, 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 of record, it's hard to get a job with, with a murder conviction on your, on your record. He's, he's 
he's burglared several homes in the past couple years as well. We went to jail for that. They're going to church now in South Olathe, Olathe on a regular basis. It's, it's probably 10 miles from here. It's too far for them to come to Providence. Although they've been invited, but they are settling into a small church down there in Olathe. I went and visited them this last week. And they were extremely proud to show me their room in which they've been able to decorate. The hotel owner has given them some freedom to decorate their, their small hotel room. So they've got a few things up on the walls. They bought their own sheets, their own blankets, rather than having the hotel supplied things. They just got a little dog a couple weeks ago, and they were super excited to have someone to actually care for. It's giving them some encouragement, some motivation to try to get their lives uh, straightened out. They've been clean and sober for six months now. It's the longest stretch since I've known them. And I help them out from time to time, um, pr primarily just driving them around when they need to go to the store or go to the doctor or, or whatever the case may be. I, I offer them rides. But the trouble is, I'm ashamed to say that when I am with them at times, I'm ashamed to be with them. Okay? They look the part of a homeless couple. They, they reek of smoke because they, they, they're chain smokers. They go through packs and packs of cigarettes every day. Their teeth have been all rotted out from the drugs that they've taken for years and years. They don't have nice clothes. He has a scraggly beard. Their, eye, their faces are drawn and, and, and eyes are sunken back in their, in their heads there. They look like drug addicts. They look like they're homeless people. When I go into restaurants with them, when I go into the store with them, when I go into the, to the doctor's office with them, I'm looking around to see if there's anybody that I recognize because I don't want to be seen with these kind of people. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm convicted when I get with them. I go and I spend time with them, but I find that afterwards I wish I hadn't had to do that. And I think... We all can be that same way. I'm, you know, I want to be. I don't want to be known, at times, as a friend of sinners and tax collectors, because I'm afraid of what others might think of me when they see me with them. But what was Jesus' attitude towards these sinners and tax collectors? What was his attitude towards Levi and to his friends? He wasn't afraid to be seen with them. He was there with them, not to condone their behavior, but to call them to repentance. His whole ministry, his whole preaching ministry, remember, was summarized up in Mark 1, verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message that Jesus had. This was his bread and butter message. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it's safe to assume that people who knew of Jesus knew that, that's, knew that that was his message. That's what he taught. That's what he preached. Those people at Levi's home that evening had probably heard of Jesus. Maybe they had even heard him personally speak. Maybe they had seen him around town. So he wasn't there conveying that evening that he accepted their behavior and that he would never, that they would never have to change. His message was, was a clearly, his message was clearly one of repentance. I don't think any of us would want this morning to say that we want to narrow the gospel call, but what sorts of people do we want to be a part of our church? We understand that be the need to be baptized and become a member. There's a need for repentance and a desire to change. There's, just, there's discipleship involved. But what sort of people do we want to come in here and be identified with us? It's easy to talk about ministering to the poor. It's a very popular thing to do, and it's a very good thing to do. But what if there are lots and lots of poor people who came into Providence and attended our services on Sunday morning? 
How many of us would actually engage these folks and truly minister and care for them week after week for year after year? Would we grow weary within a, a, a few weeks or a few months and begin to look for another church where everyone's a bit more like us, not quite so poor and not quite so needy? We hear a lot about diversity this, these days, and diversity is good. Do we really want to welcome people who eat different foods, though, communicate in different ways, different languages, maybe people who, who like different songs, different music? What about how we want to, we talk about how we, how we want everyone to come to Christ. Anyone and everyone needs to come to Christ. And I believe we're all sincere about that. But deep down, do we really mean everyone? Or do we mean the educated, the clean-cut, the culturally conservative families with well-paying jobs, the Caucasian, the middle-class family with four kids who homeschool, drive a minivan, kids who are well-behaved, dress nice, and say all the right things? Who is it that we really want to come to Providence? I encourage you sometime, watch the visitors who come in. Who are the ones who have large crowds gathered around them at the end of the service? Who are the ones who leave with no one approaching them at all? Think for a moment what effort we make, that you make, to go out and reach out to those visitors before and after the service. My friend, this homeless man has, has, that I spoke about just a few minutes ago, he's visited Providence several times in the past. He worshiped with us. He always sat in the back row. He heard the word of God preached. And only on only one occasion of his visit did anyone go up and approach him and introduce themselves to him. There was a young black man who came and visited one Sunday last summer. And I only observed one person. I don't remember who it was. Maybe others who went up to him as well. But only one person went up and approached him and, and talked to him and introduced themselves. So what are we communicating to visitors, to outsiders, to the sinners and tax collectors when they come in? Are we, what are we communicating to them in our neighborhoods, our friends, our neighbors, those that we encounter at work and, and in the neighborhood, in the stores, in the restaurants? Are, we, are our actions communicating welcome, that we welcome them into our midst, that we want to be friends with them, that we want to, to engage with them? We say we want to make disciples, but who's going to be willing to step forward and disciple those whose lives are a mess? Who will, come, who will welcome the awkward couple into their care group? couple that doesn't quite understand social dynamics. They aren't as mature of a Christian as we would perceive ourselves to be. Will we go out of our way to approach that person in the lobby who we know is very emotionally needy, and then if you ask them the dreaded question, how they are doing, that you're going to be there for a while. Ian Duguid writes this. He says, are our churches places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Are our churches safe places where people whose lifestyles are notorious in the community can come without being stared at and judged? Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all the sinners go? Or are we good at only welcoming those who are already somewhat religious, those who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community and whose face is already fit? There is a serious challenge here for each one of us to ponder, not just for the pastors and church leaders, each one of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through our church doors. Will we welcome them? Will anyone sit with them or speak to them afterwards? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives may be? Will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? 
So what options would make your heart rejoice next week? If you come to the service next Sunday and you see five new Christian families, they're solid Christians, they love the Lord, they love to serve, they love to give, they look and they act and dress just like us, would we go up to them and welcome them to Providence? Glad you're here. Glad you're here worshiping with us. I hope we would go up and welcome them to Providence. What about this other option? Next Sunday we see coming to Providence for the first time, sneaking in late, sitting in the back, a lesbian couple or a family of, with skin that, that's different from ours, different color than ours? What about a group of teens who we want to avoid at all costs if we encounter them in a, in a dark street at late at night? A homeless couple, maybe a, singless, a single mom. It's the new year is, is, is quickly approaching, and it, they thought that they would. Christmas time is coming. It's a time when all people who often don't come to church, they will come to church at Christmas. So maybe they, they just stop in and thought they'd see what the church thing is all about. Which scenario would get you more excited? Would you go up to and welcome? Who would you go up to and welcome after the service? Would you invite, who would you invite out after, afterwards to lunch? Who, did you, who would you invite to your care group later that week? Who would you hope would come back the following week? And I'm speaking to myself here, folks, as much as I am to you. I need my heart needs to be challenged just as much as anyone else's here. We make no apologies at Providence for our doctrinal integrity. No apologies for our, our meaty sermons and our services for our worship style. No apologies for the high moral standards that we set for ourselves. We want excellence in all that we do, and we want excellence in our lives. We want to see the individuals here at Providence grow to be discipled, to become more like Christ, to become more mature Christians. But if we live and love like Jesus did, will we also welcome those who are needy and messy? Will we welcome those people into our midst? As for me, I want both groups to feel welcome, equally welcome here at Providence. But I want to, but I would honestly be more excited if I came to next next church, church next Sunday and the second group is the one who showed up and found them sitting in those empty chairs. Nothing would excite me more than to have individuals, families who are lost and without hope in this world, who are destined for eternal punishment, to come to Providence, to hear the gospel preached, to be loved and welcomed by all of us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would be convicted, and then would be taken by the hand and led to the cross, where their dead souls can be reborn, and where they can be given the hope and the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. There are people who are different, who haven't been raised in church, who don't know what the Bible t teaches about how to talk, how to dress, and how to behave, and how to live. These people are messy. They're going to need lots of help. They're going to need lots of, of care. They're going to need lots of prayer. The sinners and tax collectors don't necessarily know how you're supposed to act and to behave in church. But will we welcome them into our church? We need to cast the net and our hearts wide. Tax collectors and sinners need to follow Jesus. The rich people need to follow Jesus. The poor people need to follow Jesus. Dirty people need to follow Jesus. Criminals need to follow Jesus. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, they all need to follow Jesus. Business people need to follow Jesus. We often hear people talk about having to avoid sharing the gospel at work. And I understand that there are challenges to that. We need to act wisely in those situations and in those environments. But... I don't want you to think that you can't share the gospel in your workplace. Twenty, when I was 20, many, 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 many years ago now, I was working for the California Department of Forestry, and my boss, my boss, 
was a Christian, and he didn't hesitate to share the gospel with me. And after a couple of years, he was able to lead me to the Lord. The Holy Spirit came, regenerated me, and Ted was there. He was my boss. He had shared the gospel with me faithfully for a couple of years and then prayed with me one night to, to ask Christ into my life. So I don't want you to, to believe a lie that says you have to avoid sharing the gospel at work. I might not be up here today if someone hadn't taken that chance to share the gospel with me. So I'd encourage you, obviously use wisdom, be careful, but we don't need to avoid it. So Jesus that night, as he's at Levi's house, he's not giving Blake an acceptance by eating with the tax collectors and sinners, but it was an, a wide open inv invitation that he cast. Likewise, Jesus was not tolerant towards sin, but he was friendly towards the sinners. In verse 32, Jesus finishes by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was not just hanging out with sinners. Yeah, I'm good friends with my neighbor. We go, we go golfing once in a while. We have a drink once in a while. We go out to dinner occasionally. We have them over once in a while. I'm good with that. But we never get around to sharing the gospel with them. That's not what Jesus is doing here. This passage should instruct us this morning. It isn't always easy to know in what situations we should confront sin and when we need to back off a bit and just enjoy a meal with the sinners and tax collectors in our lives. Jesus was not willing to compromise with sinners, but he was willing, to eat, willing and eager to share a meal with them. Are we just as willing? Or is our attitude toward non-Christians one of suspicion and hostility? Are we so uncomfortable around people who don't know Jesus that we feel tainted just being around them and can't stand going into their homes or inviting them into ours? If so, we're not living like Jesus did. Jesus did not apologize for mixing with sinners. In fact, he said it was his mission to seek and to save the lost, to call sinners to repentance. In Romans 1, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Do we feel the same mission that Jesus felt? Do we feel the obligation the apostle Paul felt to preach the gospel? What kind of doctor would refuse to treat patients? What kind of auto mechanic would refuse to work on cars? What kind of salesman would refuse to sell? And what kind of Christian refuses to share the gospel and be the friend of sinners? Paul reviled, uh, sorry, not Paul, people reviled Jesus and they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I've been called a number of things in my life. I've been ridiculed and laughed at for my beliefs. I've been, um, people thought that Pam and I were crazy 12 years ago to move to Kansas to plant a church. I've been cussed at, I've been cursed at for preaching the gospel in the streets of San Francisco and in Hollywood. But as far as I know, I've never been ridiculed as being a friend of sinners. And I wonder how many of that us have earned that reputation. So let me just conclude here with a, a, a couple of points of application. First, we need to know and feel deeply that our church is already filled with tax collectors and sinners. Sitting right in front of you, right next to you, right behind you, up here are tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. There are people in this church who are really, really messed up. We think we look good and we put on our Sunday faces. Our external per appearances look good, but we know that inside we're not that good. We've got marital problems. We've got kids who are running from God. We struggle with anger. We're judgmental. We struggle with greed and envy and jealousy. 
we're arrogant, we're proud. We're all sinners and tax collectors, if you want to stop and think about it for a second. So what would a few more matter? We could welcome them in. They are more like us than we want to admit. We need less fear of being contaminated by being around sinners and tax collectors and more confident in Christ's power to cleanse us. I'm not encouraging people with drinking problems to go hang out in bars. I'm not encouraging new Christians to keep doing all the same things that they did before they came to Christ. We have to use wisdom, but we must not think of relationships with sinners primarily as something to be avoided. These are opportunities to be sought after, opportunities to love, to learn about them, opportunities to lead them to Christ, opportunities to pray with them. So do we agree with John that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? Keep this in mind. Christ changed you, and he changed me. If Jesus wasn't a friend of sinners, how would any of us have come to Christ? We were all sinners at one time, and there was someone who was willing to go to you to come to me and to share the gospel with us when we were sinners and tax collectors. Can't we do the same thing for, the, for others? We must speak the truth about sin. But you don't have to speak it constantly wherever sin is present. No one has been given the spiritual gift of nagging. We shouldn't nag our non-Christian friends when they swear. We shouldn't nag every time they tell us about a movie they went to last night that we would be offended, be ashamed to go and see or what we would think would be inappropriate. God has not called us to be the conscience for other people. We are tempted to think that if we don't say something but by our silence, we are proving their behavior. People knew where Jesus stood. They knew what his message was. It was one of repentance. Be baptized. They'd heard him say it many, many times. They should hear us say it as well. They need to know what we think about Jesus. They need to know what we think about the Son of God, about faith, about repentance, about discipleship. Jesus wasn't hiding anything from them. He wasn't soft-selling the message but he didn't turn every single encounter into a bare-knuckled confrontation with them. It's okay at times just to chill out a little bit and go with Jesus and go and hang out with sinners and tax collectors. They need to know who you are, what you believe, but it's okay at times to go spend some time with them, looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. Fourth, we must realize that we can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Jesus knew that Jesus knew when to be like vinegar and he knew when to be like honey. In Luke 15, we read, we read again how the tax collectors and the sinners all wanted to be near Jesus. Jesus didn't go plan some kind of outreach or special ministry or some kind of special program. It certainly helped that he did do miracles, and he was the Son of God. But people were drawn to him because there was a gracious spirit about him. They came to Jesus because Jesus was a man who would go and spend time with them, eat in their homes, talk with them, treat them as people, not as sinners and tax collectors. We must remember that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That doesn't mean we never spend time with other Christians. We come to Sunday morning service. We worship together. We go to care groups. We pray with each other. We share our struggles with each other. We encourage each other. We need to spend time encouraging each other, praying with each other. We need to care for each other in practical ways. The church providence excels at these things. I see many times people in here, many times of people getting together to confess sins together, to pray for each other, to help each other, to encourage these. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Those are good things. We need to continue to strive for excellence in those areas. 
There needs to be a balance in our lives. If the only people we have time to get together with are fellow Christians, something's wrong with our priorities. Something's wrong with our schedules. We need to make time in our lives to spend with the tax collectors and the sinners. Those are the people that Jesus spent most of his time with. Those are the people who would flock to him and come to hear what he had to say. Those are the ones who were amazed at what he had to say and what he did. The lepers, the paralytics, the weak, the wounded, the sick, the sinners, and the tax collectors. Those are the ones who kept flocking to Jesus over and over and over. Jesus said, Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save the lost. So what is our mission? Jesus, as he was taken up into heaven, instructed us to go and make disciples. So in the coming year, in the years ahead, I want us to, to, to pray together, pray with me for more opportunities to interact with sinners and tax collectors and that they would find that we love them and, they would, and, that, and pray that as we love them, they would come to have the grace to confront and instruct and disciple them and that when they are confronted, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, work to convict them as they are convicted, that we would have the opportunity to lead them to the cross because hanging on that cross was a great friend of sinners. The new year is upon us. A lot of people like to, to, to use the new year, the time leading into new year, to think about goals and objectives for the coming year, to make plans and resolutions. So there's a number of things that I want us to consider as a church for, for the new year, 2015. I want us to be a body of believers who love the Lord our God, as it says in Luke 27, with all of our hearts, with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind and our neighbors as ourselves. I want us to wholeheartedly, eagerly, and passionately pursue Christian maturity and Christ-likeness and to grow into a deeper understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did for us on the cross. I desire that Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.16 would be answered in us, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And finally, I would love for Providence Community Church to be known as a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you were a friend of sinners. If that had not been the case, Lord, where would we be this morning? We all were sinners. We were tax collectors. We were lost in this world. We were without hope. We were gossipers. We were slanderers. We were thieves. We were crooks. Lord, we have done many things in our lives that we are not proud of. We are just as guilty as any of the other sinners and tax collectors out there. Lord, but you loved us enough. Lord, you loved us enough before the beginning of the world to call us into your kingdom. Lord, you, you sent people into our lives who could share the gospel with us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you regenerated us and gave us the ability to respond. Lord, may we be the friend to other sinners 
as others were to us in the coming year. In Jesus' name, amen.